When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. With heavy gold chains, a mohawk, and the arms of his crimson suit cut off to expose his bulging biceps, the former wrestler made an unusual Santa Claus. A petite, elegant woman perched on his knee. She planted a gentle peck on his partially shaved head. Oh wow, now that'll start some scandals, Santa cried. It was December 1983, and the front pages of the next day's papers were covered with photos capturing this moment between Mr. T and Nancy Reagan. The First Lady was giving the press corps a tour of her White House holiday decorations. She'd invited the star of the A-Team along to play Santa. A year into her Just Say No campaign, Nancy Reagan was impressed by Mr. T's anti-drug advocacy, and she thought the popular actor could help shed her uptight image. The pair formed an unlikely friendship and continued to work together on anti-drugs campaigns. A Christmas miracle of sorts. When Nancy Reagan died in 2016, Mr. T was invited to the private funeral. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prudeau, The Economist's US editor, and this week we have something a little different. A special Christmas episode looking back on 2021. Today we're going to talk about the stories we didn't get to cover on Checks and Balance this year. We'll have a couple of surprise guests who will test how much we remember about 2021. And we'll find out if our listeners can outfox our undisputed trivia champion, John Fasman, with some fiendish questions. With me to enjoy this exercise in public humiliation are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, how is New York and are you feeling festive? I'm feeling very festive and very much looking forward to the quizzing of John Fasman, where he will no doubt be able to answer all questions yet again. But I think this will be fun to test his limits. Fasman, how are you feeling about this? I'm feeling a bit in the crosshairs, but that's fine. You know, I like that intro. I actually met Mr. T at O'Hare Airport around 1985 or so. I was a very dorky nine or 10 year old, and I'm afraid that I was probably one of the fools he pitied. Did you go say hi? I did. I went up up and, and shook his hand. He was very nice. Okay, because it's Christmas, we're going to mix things up a little bit today. We've got three quizzes. 
The one we're most looking forward to is hearing the questions that you, our dear listeners, have prepared for John Fassman. But you'll have to wait until the end for that bit. We're also each going to pick a story or person that we didn't get a chance to discuss on the podcast this year and spend a bit of time on that. I'm going to go first. And the thing that I wish we had talked about, we meant to do a podcast on it and we didn't quite get around to it, is the 2020 census, the results of which were delayed and only released this year in 2021. For the first time on record, the white population in the United States has declined. Just released data from the 2020 census shows the white population in America is down 8.6% from 2010. So just think about this context, okay? It's the first time it declines, and it declines by 8.6%. I mean, that's that, that's stunning. It's huge. So now... So those were some of the top-line numbers in the 2020 census. There are a few reasons why I find the census so interesting. One, of course, it's the big, you know, once a decade data dump that allows you to look at how America is changing. We spend so much time talking about America in terms of what Republicans are doing and what Democrats are doing. And the census is quite a nice opportunity to get away from that and look at some of the deep patterns going on in American society sort of underneath the surface. And the other reason really is that I spent quite a lot of this year thinking about race. I wrote a special report for The Economist on race in America, which we published on the anniversary of George Floyd's death. And one of the reasons there's been so much change in the white population in America is because of the way people are self-identifying in terms of race. This time around, the census gave people more choices on how they could choose their racial identity. And what seems to have happened over the past 10 years, between 2010 and 2020, is that racial identities have become more complicated. Um, In short, because of the rise of mixed-race marriage and various other factors, more and more people are saying that they belong to more than one race. And they're sort of scrambling racial categories in a way that we haven't seen so much before. And that, to me, seems like a hopeful thing, because I worry about an American politics that pits you know, white non-college voters against African-Americans, against Hispanics. Because when your democratic politics is based in those kinds of identity groups, it's really hard to find your way towards compromise and also really hard to accept it when the other side wins. I think if racial categories become a little more fluid, uh, that's essentially pretty good news for America and also good news for American politics. So that was the podcast I meant to do and didn't get round to. Maybe we will do some version of it in 2022. The other really interesting thing with the census, and this is a very live question, is all the knock-on effects for why the census matters, right? So it's used to distribute federal funding, and it's not just a little bit of federal funding. It has to do with really big programs like food stamps, affordable housing, health care. And it's also used to distribute congressional seats. So the census is a key tool for the broad distribution of money and power across America. And the census was complicated by the pandemic, as well as Trump halting the count one month early. People may recall he had wanted to ask questions about immigration status. But um, you see some of the fights about congressional distribution, about the distribution of congressional seats heating up now, because there are new congressional maps that are being drawn. And anytime that happens, there's often litigation that follows. So in December, the Department of Justice sued Texas over its map. Um, Texas is one of the states that had a big jump in population. And the Department of Justice says that the way that it's drawing its congressional map, it's systematically trying to diminish the power of minority voters, even though minority populations accounted for 95% of the population growth from 2010 to 2020. 
And so this is a really live question. The Department of Justice's power in this area is diminished due to a Supreme Court ruling that we've talked about on the show from 2013 that has to do with um, their oversight over states that have a history of uh, voting discrimination. And the Department of Justice no longer has the power to deny this type of gerrymandering before it goes into effect. It has to prove it after. So there's a lot of litigation here. It's a really live subject coming out of 2021 and into 2022. I'm glad you brought up the census also because I think a lot of what America is going through right now, a lot of the reasons why we're heading into a very tumultuous decade, is a sort of anxiety especially from the country's white population over the country's racial makeup. I don't know if either of you read the tremendous cover story in The Atlantic by Barton Gelman about the January 6th insurrection and more broadly, the Republican souring on democracy. One of the things that stood out for me was the thing linking the participants was not necessarily income or education levels, right? The people who were there were largely white collar and wealthier than you might expect. But what linked them is that Almost all of them came from counties that between 2015 and 2019 saw the share of the white population decrease and the share of Latino population increase. So I think a lot of the ructions we're seeing in politics are actually sort of racial anxieties expressed through these means. Yeah, I think you're right about that, John. And I think that what the census shows is tentatively a way out of that kind of racial politics in which you have one group confronting another. You know, if racial identities do become more plural, less exclusive, you know, if you're able to say, yes, I'm white and Hispanic and black, as actually an increasing number of Americans have, that would seem to be a more hopeful path for, for the country than the kind of political confrontation based on racial identity that we seem to be stuck with at the moment. And that's partly why I was so hopeful looking at those 2020 census results. I agree. I'm very hopeful in that regard in the medium term and long term. Uh, the problem is you have to get through the short term to get there. Right. Well, for this section of the show, we're going to be joined by our mystery quiz master. Aha, mystery quiz master. It's Sani, and I am so excited to be doing this. It is Zanny, Zanny Minton Beddoes, who is The Economist's editor-in-chief, in case you didn't know. Zanny, hi. Thank you for doing this. I listen every week in awe at John Fasman, and I'm hoping that we have come up with a few things to stump him in this your hundredth edition of Checks and Balance. So first of all, congratulations on a hundred fantastic episodes. Uh, but here we go. There are five questions. Um, and I will, you know, I will never make it to Jeopardy. This is the closest I'm going to get. So here we go. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a number or a set of numbers. They have something to do with 2021. And I want you to tell me what the numbers mean. So the first number, 331,447,281. Bing, bing. Is that the US population? Charlotte Bing Bing first. Ah. <laughs> well, no, I was going to say the U.S. population in the census, but we don't actually have an electronic buzzer. Okay, there's a bonus. There's a bonus. There's a bonus. Now, you are both right. A bonus. Um, what increase is that from a decade earlier? How big was the increase? I think it's 7%, something like that. Oh, my God. Charlotte, amazing. Yes, 7.4%. Wow. Good job. Okay, question number two, 71.5%. That's the white population of the electorate? Maybe, but it's not the one that we were thinking of. Huh. Anybody else? It has something to do with the pandemic. Little hint. 
the vaccination rate hasn't got that high, has it? Maybe it has. Is it, it has. It's it the has. percentage wow. of American adults who are fully vaccinated. That's the percentage of Americans who have either had two jabs or in the case of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, just one. And 25% of adults in the US have had their booster jab. Uh, so I think that is a point each now. Right, this is getting very tense. Question number three. 130 degrees Fahrenheit or 54.4 degrees Celsius? Uh, I think that was the hottest temperature this year in the US. Very good, John. The temperature at Furnace Creek Visitor Center in Death Valley on July the 10th. It was indeed the highest reliably recorded temperature in America this year. Question number four. 6.2%. Something having to do with inflation. Yes, Charlotte. Excellent. The annual inflation rate in October this year, the highest for over 30 years. I think we are two points, Charlotte, two points, Prudhoe, one point, Fasman. All right, it's the last question. And this one has three bits together. And this, let me see if I get my pronunciation right. The number seven, Rehoboth Beach, 69, Wilmington, and 32, Catoctin Mountain Park. Wilmington, make me something Biden-related. Delaware. Yeah, Delaware and Joe Biden-related. Are those addresses in the city where he owns houses? It's actually the number of days President Biden was away from the White House <laughs> in his first uh. nine months as president and the places he spent them. The Bidens have a beach house in Rehoboth Beach, Wilmington's the family home, and Catoctin Mountain Park is the location of Camp David. Okay, very quick maths question. How many days in total is that? Oh, gosh, I was... <laughs> we all... We all were just preparing in a state of panic for the next question without actually listening to your numbers. Is that 99? It's actually 108. Uh, there you um, go. But that is pretty, pretty good, all of you. So Charlotte, two points. John, two points. John Fasman, I'm afraid, only one point on this. But I think all of you, many, many points for participation. And thank you so much for letting me gate crash as Quizmaster. Happy Christmas to all of you and uh, see you all again in 2022. Thank you, Zaddy. Happy Christmas. Thank you. Happy Christmas to you too. Phew, guys, I feel like we performed respectably there between us. Charlotte, what was your favourite piece from The Economist this year? And you're not allowed to pick one that you wrote yourself. Not that you would, but I'm going to set that as the, as the criteria. I'm going to highlight our COVID coverage, which I think is really differentiated, actually, from everything else that I've read, not to be too much of a plug for ourselves. But the combination of the science expertise and the healthcare expertise that we have on staff with an understanding of politics and business, I think is unusual. And the way that we're able, and by we, I mean my colleagues, not myself, the way that our, our colleagues were able to analyze this problem and really break down what was going on at specific moments in time. Whether it was the Delta variant or Omicron, I felt like I wanted to read what my colleagues had written about COVID in order to get a handle on the issues. So I think that is what I'd really point to. I'm going to point to our climate coverage for similar reasons. I thought that the issue we did on the three-degree world, both the leader and the briefing were terrific. And beyond that, the coverage of COP and the coverage of climate more broadly from a, not just from an environmental perspective, but environment, business, finance. Our podcast, to a lesser degree, about climate coverage was really illuminating. Um, I just think that our, our coverage of that issue all year long has been peerless. 
And again, I'll point out, like Charlotte did, that when I say our, that does not include me. That's my colleagues. I think I could pick almost any Lexington or Chagwan column. Both of those, I think, are amazing every week. If I had to pick a single piece, in addition to the things you've already highlighted, I thought our colleague Alice's briefing about decentralized finance managed to demystify an incredibly complicated subject and in a very interesting way. So I'd pick that. But of course, to enjoy any of these, you'll have to go to economist.com slash USPod and subscribe. If you don't already, you'll find that link in the notes for this episode. John, what was the thing or person that we missed out on this year that you you regret not covering and that you want to make amends for now? So I'm going to choose a person, and that person is Brad Raffensperger. He is Georgia's Secretary of State, which means he oversees its elections. And before that, he served in Georgia's House of Representatives for a couple of terms. He's from uh, Johns Creek, which is a wealthy, close-in suburb of Atlanta. And by training, he's a civil engineer and entrepreneur. And I spoke with him a couple of times, I think in 2019 and early 2020, for stories about voting rights laws in Georgia. And, you know, even though I disagreed with him about, for instance, the necessity of voter ID laws, I found him honest and serious and a sort of dorky straight shooter. And as you'll remember, he really found himself in the rights crosshairs, in Donald Trump's crosshairs, in late 2020 and early 2021. Donald Trump wanted him to find, and I have that word in scare quotes, 12,000 votes and effectively overturn the results of the election, which Joe Biden won, and throw the state to him. I don't know. Look, Brad, I got to get, I have to find 12,000 votes, and I have them times a lot, and therefore I won the state. That's before we go to the next step, which is in the process of right now, you know. And I watched you this morning, and you said, uh, well, there was no criminality, but I, I mean, all of this stuff is, is very dangerous stuff. It's, when you talk about no criminality, I think it's very dangerous for you to say that. I, I just I just don't know why you don't want to have the votes counted as they are. And I want to pick up on Donald Trump saying that it's dangerous for Brad Raffensperger to say that he didn't have the votes. Now, Raffensperger isn't the only Republican to stand up to Donald Trump, but there aren't many, and a lot of them are getting out of politics. You know, Adam Kinzinger and Anthony Gonzalez, the two Republican House members who voted to impeach Donald Trump, are retiring because they couldn't win a Republican primary against a Trump-backed opponent. And Gonzalez's wife and children had to have police protection. And Raffensperger and his family also got death threats. But to his credit, he's running again. He's up against Jody Heiss in the primary, who is a far-right Trump-backed conservative who voted to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And he believes that Islam doesn't deserve First Amendment protections, and he opposes church-state separations. And he's from the ascendant wing of the party. And this year, the story of American politics has really been the Republican Party souring on democracy and the preparations it's making to subvert, if necessary, the 2024 presidential election. And I don't think Democrats have quite figured out how to parry this threat, but even Democrats should appreciate that America needs a healthy, you know, pro-small-D Democratic conservative party. And there have been depressingly few Republicans willing to buck the party's Trumpist trend and still stand up for democracy and conservative values. Raffensperger is one of them, and that's why he's my choice for American of the Year. I think Raffensperger is a fascinating Republican for all the reasons you mentioned, but also I'd say for some of his more recent positioning, which is in large part because he's up for re-election. The Secretary of State is, is a position that needs to be, for which he needs to run this coming year. And you see him in editorials for the Wall Street Journal arguing about 
Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor of Georgia in 2018, that her refusal to concede that governor's race helped sow distrust in elections. And he wrote extensively about the damage done by the Steele dossier, how the FBI improperly went out after Trump. He's trying to play to the Trump base, even as he stands by his assertion that the election of 2020 was um, legitimate and that that Joe Biden carried that state. But I think one of the things that's fascinating about Raffensperger and Georgia in general is that both sides really see the elections and election fraud and election legitimacy as a way to motivate their base. Um, for Stacey Abrams, it's a, a real way to bring people to the polls. It's become a core of her message. And on the right, there's a continuing discussion in Georgia around election legitimacy. So I think this is really hot topic, obviously, in 2021, but also will be in 2022. I think Raffensperger is a good pick. I think the way he acted, as John says, is admirable in many ways. It's also worth noticing, however, that because he acted the way he did and, and certified the election result as he should have, Georgia's House of Representatives has taken away the power to certify election results from the Secretary of State and handed it to itself. And so that important check and balance, because we like checks and balance on this podcast, that important check and balance in the system is no longer there and won't be there in 2024. Okay, well, we now have another mystery quiz master to put us through our paces. Hey, gang. None other than the intelligence's very own Jason Palmer. Jason, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, I, I've been waiting, I've been waiting, hoping to say these words. Before we go, we've got a quiz. Uh, and, you know, the thing is, John, all year long, you get to sit there, dare I say, smugly with the answers in front of you. I've often wondered how you would do if it were you in the hot seat. So, so let's find out. Right. These are all things that famous American political figures have said or written in the past year. Your job is just to tell me who. All right. We ready? Ready as we'll ever be. Fasman's nodding. He's looking focused. Right. Focus, all of you. Question one. There is nothing more dangerous than a reckless asshole who thinks he's smarter than everyone else. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Senator Ted Cruz. <laughs> that could be anyone. I'm going to say that's AOC. Or is that uh, Bob Dole? I think it's Barack Obama. The correct answer is former Speaker John Boehner in his memoir on the House. Of course. That's so annoying. Oh, that's good. That is annoying. I should have got that. You can picture him swirling his dark brown drink as he wrote that. He he read the his own audiobook for that, didn't he? So I think I've actually heard him say that in his gravelly voice. He ad-libbed that bit. Uh, I can't believe I didn't get that. That's super annoying. Okay. All right. Compose yourselves. Question two. These are the opening lines from a different kind of political book. Who wrote them? Madam Secretary, said Charles Boynton, hurrying beside his boss as she rushed down Mahogany Row to her office in the State Department. You have eight minutes to get to the Capitol. It's ten minutes away, said Ellen Adams, breaking into a run, and I have to shower and change, unless... She stopped and turned to her chief of staff. I can go like this? That's from the... I think that's from the mystery novel that Hillary Clinton wrote with Louise Penny. That's a good guess. When did Bill Clinton's thing with James Patterson come out? Was that this year? I think we've zeroed in. It's a dodgy mystery novel by a Clinton, but the question is which one? Oh, it might be Stacey Abrams writes mystery novels. I'll go with Stacey Abrams just to mix it up. Fasman gets this one quick on the buzzer. It was Hillary Clinton in her political thriller, State of Terror. 
Okay, question three. Who said, the court was thought to be the least dangerous branch and we may have become the most dangerous? Uh, John Roberts. I don't think John Roberts would say that about the court, though, would he? I think Breyer. I think it's Breyer. Breyer's been on a speaking tour. Or Clarence. No, no, no. I take that back. Clarence Thomas, I think, said that. He also has been chatty. Flying in at the last. Correct, Charlotte. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, do you get to do that? Do you get to say three different answers until you land on one? I think you probably do. <laughs> I was halfway through just going through all nine at random. <laughs> exactly. All right. Who said this one? American men are and can be an unrivaled force for good in the world. If we can strengthen... Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley. Whoa. Wow. All right, we'll give that to you, Prito, for being quick on the That bus. really should have been Charlotte's after her Make America Manly again. Mom, her mama slogan. Right, from Josh Hawley's The Future of the American Man speech he gave at the National Conservatism Conference in October. Okay, question five. He was a heck of a guy. Is that uh, Joe Biden on Bob Dole? It's, it has a Joe Biden sound to it, doesn't it? It could have been anything. It could have been someone who served Joe Biden a corn dog. At an I.O. fair. I think he said, has said that at least a thousand times in the past year. Oh, OK. All right. Uh, let me let, let me flesh this one out a bit. Who said this in tribute to a famous Brit who died in April? Are there any famous Brits? There's one less. No clue. I think Joe Biden said it, but I don't know who he said it about. No clue. Biden said it. We're agreed on that. It was about Prince Philip. Oh, was he in fact a heck of a guy? I think that 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 is the only I doubt anyone ever described him as that other than Joe Biden. I think he was a heck of a guy. Last thing, the quick fire round. Who called Mitch McConnell a broken old crow? Donald Trump. <laughs> Who called Liz Cheney a low polling warmonger? Donald Trump. Who called Lisa Murkowski the disaster from Alaska? Donald Trump. <laughs> disaster from Alaska. Who called Adam Schiff a sleazeball and a lowlife? Donald Trump. <laughs> Who called Facebook a cancer to democracy? Uh, AOC. Good, Fasman. Very good. Who called Mark Zuckerberg a criminal? That sounds a little measured for AOC. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's someone on the Republican side. Um, I would say someone like Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. Ted Cruz? Your, your hint is that this figure has appeared earlier in the quick round. Donald Trump. Very good. Um, I got a little confused in the flurry of the quickfire round, but I think Fasman has triumphed this week. I think he's he's definitely triumphed in, in this bit. We're back to the natural order of things. Charlotte, we had a good run, but it was it's over, unfortunately. I feel like that one Clarence Thomas answer should be worth about five of my Donald Trump answers. That was that was well done. Yeah, that was good. Jason, you've been a magnificent quiz master. Thank you for moonlighting on our podcast and happy Christmas. It is an honor. Happy holidays to you all. We'll be back in a moment when Charlotte is going to pay tribute to a musical theater great. Okay, Charlotte, now it's your turn. Who is the person or what is the thing that we should have covered this year that we didn't get around to covering in the podcast? Well, I'm not sure on a politics show that we should have covered it, but the person... I chose is Stephen Sondheim, about whom there have been many obituaries and podcasts in the wake of his death. But he's a master of a distinctly American art form, and that's the musical. So I want to talk about him a bit. It's also distinctively American art form that you have a real soft spot for, right? This occasionally comes up in the podcast, but you're unfashionably fond of musicals. Let's put it like that. Yeah, I am. I mean, I grew up on musicals generally and on certain Sondheim musicals in particular. 
We had a television that was kept unplugged under a table in my parents' apartment. And it was occasionally brought out for special treats, one of which was to watch VHS videos of musicals. And we had one of the Broadway production of Sunday in the Park with George, which is a Sondheim musical about the painter George Seurat. And my siblings and I listened to Sondheim songs well before we understood them. We used to listen to A Little Night Music, which is inspired by a film by Igmar Bergman. And my sister and I would walk home from the subway singing Every Day a Little Death, which is about the knowledge that your husband is betraying you. Every day a little death Every day a little death In the parlor, in the bed On the lips and in the eyes In the curtains, in the silver In the mountains, in the pauses In the gestures, in the sun So I think, you know, it was definitely part of the fabric of my childhood. But the more you listen to his music, the more you appreciate it. And I think there are really two things that set him apart. One thing about his shows is they didn't follow a particular musical style in itself, but the style of the music felt inextricable from the show's subject. So if you think of the score of Sunday in the Park with George about George Seurat, it has this score, which is alternatively staccato and sweeping. Uh, The title song has a melody that's played by a horn, and it sounds like warm sunlight on a painting. In the Marry Me a Little, which is from Company, which is a show that essentially has no plot, it's more about a state of mind, about ambivalence towards love and commitment. Marry me a little. Marry me a little has this piano that has a kind of restless rolling current under the the melody. And it sort of sounds like a jumble of emotions heading in, in a particular direction. That's the way it ought to be. I'm ready. Marry me a little. Um, But the other thing about his shows is that the range of human experience that he covers, I think people think about musical songs about love, but he dealt with ambition and hubris, regret, manipulation, the terrifying responsibility of raising children. I mean, Sunday in the Park, which I talked about before, is about the loneliness of an artist and how the passion for art can inhibit relationships. And I think that people who say that they don't like musicals, which is their choice, which is I think that they're missing out. They often talk about artifice or they say that musicals are saccharine. And Sondheim was someone who dealt with imperfection, who explored human shortcomings as much as he did any other more admirable qualities. And I think that his work illuminated the human condition in all its complexity in a beautiful way. And when you experience any art form that feels true, that feels like it's saying something true, it feels very personal. And so, of course, Sondheim, for me, his songs feel very personal because I grew up listening to them. But I think for many people, his songs resonated. And he's one of those artists whose work gives you goosebumps. And so I think he leaves behind a body of work that's truly impressive. That was really beautiful, Charlotte. I am one of those people you mentioned who is not terribly fond of musicals. I tend to find them somewhat overwrought. But having listened to your introduction to Stephen Sondheim, I think I know what I'm listening to this weekend. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to go and give those a listen too. John, in an effort to defeat you in the quiz, we've enlisted the help of our listeners who've sent in a bunch of questions. So we've got a listener-generated quiz for you. Here's the first question. Hello, this is Matt Tolmer from Los Angeles, and this is my question for John Fassman. 
This is a question many people answer incorrectly. Who is the youngest vice president of the United States? Oh, what a brilliant question. Uh, was it Dan Quayle? The answer is John Cabell Breckinridge. He was 36 at the time of his election. If they know who he is, most people remember Breckinridge as the Secretary of War for the Confederate States of America. They don't know he was the vice president. They think Dan Quayle was the youngest. That was a great question. The next one is from a listener called Justin. A little easier. Hello, this is Justin Margolis from Montreal, Quebec, but live in Washington, D.C. Here's a question for John Fasman. Two first ladies were born outside of the United States. Can you name them and their countries of birth? Oh, obviously, uh, uh, Donald Trump's wife was born in Slovakia. Why am I blanking on her name? Melania. Melania, that's right. God, I can't believe I missed that. So Melania was obviously born in Slovakia. Um, who is the other one? My, my clue would be to go early. Yeah, was, uh, was George Washington's wife English? I may have misled you there. And the answer is Melania Trump, wife of Donald J. Trump, born in Slovenia, then part of Yugoslavia in 1970. And then Louisa Adams, the wife of the sixth president, John Quincy Adams, who was born in London, Great Britain in 1775. That was a very good question. It's Slovenia rather than Slovakia. Sorry, I missed that. The, this whole exercise is designed to humiliate you. So actually, if you got these questions right, we'd be really disappointed. Question three comes from another listener called Sally. Hello, this is Sally Bigwood from Stratford-upon-Avon. And my question for John Fassman is, which former senator who died in 2003 had both a mother and father who also served as senators? So there haven't been very many women to serve in the Senate, particularly not that long ago. Um, who was it? I, I honestly have no idea. The answer is Russell Long, who was senator for Louisiana from 1948 to 1987. His father was Huey Long, who served as Louisiana's governor and then as senator and was assassinated in 1935. Huey's wife, who was Russell's mother, was Rose McConnell Long. And upon the death of her husband, she was, she was appointed to serve as senator until this, a special election could be set up. Another great question. I should say that my mother's first name is Sally. And when you introduce the listener by first name only, I was getting ready to... It would have been a tense Christmas, let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what she would have asked to catch you out. <laughs> the next one is from a listener named Andrew. Hello, this is Andrew Patterson from Auckland, New Zealand. Always enjoy the podcast and the quiz. Here's my question for John Fasman. Which former president was nicknamed the magician because of his political adroitness in behind-the-scenes maneuvers? It would be too easy to think that it's that it's LBJ. Although, and his maneuvers were not behind the scenes, right? I don't know. I feel like I'm going to... I'm... Was it a super obscure president, Chester Arthur, James Polk, someone like that? The answer is Martin Van Buren, the eighth president. Although Van Buren was the carefully chosen political heir of Andrew Jackson, he did achieve the unique distinction of holding, within a relatively short span, the offices of U.S. Senator, Governor of New York, Secretary of State, 
vice president and president. James Polk is my go-to US politics history trivia answer. I feel like he, he's, a, he's a surefire bet. Right, Fasman, all is not lost. Question five. Hi, team. Thank you for your podcast, which I enjoy very much each week. This is Patrick from near High Wycombe in the UK, and this is my question for John Fasman. There were three elections in the 20th century where one candidate won all the states along the Mississippi River. Who were the successful candidates? God, that's a brilliant question. I think it was, it had to be uh, Reagan in 1988, Nixon in 1972, and uh, Maybe FDR in 1940? The answer is FDR twice in 1932 and 1936, and Richard Nixon in 1972. There are 10 states along the Mississippi, from north to south, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi itself. That's a great question. So good. The final question comes from Dimitri, and it's Christmas-themed. Hello, everyone. My name is Dimitri. I'm from San Francisco. And here is my Christmas question. For the first century of American independence, Washington, D.C. was not an especially jolly place, as Christmas was only made a federal holiday in 1870 by President Grant. However, before that point, the states were allowed to mark the day if they so pleased. Which was the first state to recognize Christmas as a legal holiday? And under which presidential administration was it recognized? Oh, I would guess somewhere in... No, it wouldn't be somewhere in New England. They didn't really... The Puritans didn't really go in for holidays, right? I don't know. Was it, uh, was it Virginia under Jefferson? Alabama was the first state to declare Christmas a state holiday in 1836 under the presidency of Andrew Jackson. I have to say, I am so impressed by these questions. John, I'm impressed by your performance as always, but just a shout out to the listeners to come up with these fantastic bits of trivia. I, um, those were all really, really good. Yeah, I want to thank the listeners too. Those were six great questions. I'm especially proud, as I hope uh, you two are as well, John and Charlotte, at the share of our quiz questioners who's, who were not American. I'm really glad that this podcast has that reach, and I'm so grateful to every listener who took the time to send in a question for me. I'm also kicking myself on the Mississippi River question because obviously Ronald Reagan did not run in 1988, and I knew he didn't win Minnesota in 84. Anyway, that's the last bit of self-criticism I'm going to do right now. The um, the self-flagellation instinct is so strong in you, John Fasman. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, it's a very festive way to end the year with the St. Fasman self-flagellation. I would second your thanks to our listeners for sending in the questions. Um, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks for a great year. Happy Christmas to both of you. Same to you. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thanks, John. I hope you have a wonderful holiday. Thanks also to our producers, Harriet Noble and Nicola Rofast. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can also get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Happy Christmas. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.
the secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com.